Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted February 17, 2017, we talk with writer and historian Maura Elizabeth Cunningham about her essay in the new WPJ winter issue, headlined Good Girls Revolt, The Future of Feminism in China. We'll also point out other top features in the new winter issue, cover line interrupted, with a unique perspective provided by all female writers and editors. But first, this week's Winners and Losers report from Eurasia Group, Global Risk Consultants. Winners and Losers, all the Russian president's men, Mike Flynn, loser, he's out, and uh, he'll probably make some money. U.S. intelligence community, winner, uh, they're uh, making a difference, and uh, they're going to continue to. Lots of leaks. Paul Manafort, he's back in the news, but definitely a loser, not the side you want to be on. Rex Tillerson, winner, he's not in the news, he's still Secretary of State. At some point, he gets to drive Russia policy. Donald Trump. Loser for now. Let's see where he is next week. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Six months after they were arrested for planning a protest against sexual harassment on public transportation in China and kept behind bars for more than a month, five feminist activists released a video titled Do You Hear the Women Sing? Their own version of a call to revolution from the musical Les Mis, it begins, Do you believe that the world should be equal? This is a song that spreads equality and dignity, a song for all women. Will you join me in the eternal fight for equal rights? Let's break free from the shackles and reclaim women's strength. Not all feminist actions in China these days are quite so melodic or dramatic, thanks to a crackdown on assembly, protest, and civil liberties in general. But there is progress with which even the current regime and civilian establishment has had to cope. That progress and the problems that remain are discussed in the new WPJ winter issue by writer and historian Maura Elizabeth Cunningham, who's lived in China for years. Her essay on the future of feminism there is headlined, Good Girls Revolt, a reference to the women's lawsuit that revolutionized gender roles at Newsweek, my old employer, and subsequently much of American media. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Maura Elizabeth Cunningham, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Tell us more about that planned protest in 2015, how it compared to some previous feminist demonstrations, and on what actual charges the arrests were based uh, since they happened even before the protest began. Sure. So in the United States, um, International Women's Day on March 8th isn't really celebrated or observed, but in China it is, and it's sort of like Valentine's or Mother's Day. It's a candy and flowers type of affair. But in 2015, some feminist activists around China thought that it was the perfect opportunity to stage a protest to speak out against the problem of sexual harassment on mass transit. And they planned to hand out stickers and flyers to raise public awareness of this issue. Now, this doesn't sound 
like a very extreme action, handing out stickers or flyers. And in fact, some of the women had previously been involved in much more outrageous or in-your-face type protests. There had been one called Occupy Men's Toilets, in which they took over restrooms to shed light on the need for more women's bathrooms. Um, some of them had also been involved in a protest against domestic violence that involved women wearing wedding dresses splashed with blood. So in comparison to those, handing out stickers and flyers looked like a pretty tame action. But the authorities in several different cities caught wind of their plans, and they arrested at least nine of them before anything happened, so a day or two in advance of the planned protest. And the women were accused of picking quarrels and provoking trouble, which is a pretty vague charge that the Chinese government has in its back pocket to use against activists and dissidents. There isn't much that they need to prove, just that women were planning to do something. And some of the women were released, but as you said in the introduction, five of them were held for over a month. Um, they remained in jail until mid-April 2015, and they became known as the Feminist Five. You say you were not shocked at the arrest, given increasing restrictions under President Xi Jinping. Say more about that. Right. So at the time, I was a, a little bit taken aback. I was a little bit surprised, but I certainly wasn't shocked. So there's this perception, I think, in among many Americans, that any sort of protest is not possible in China. But for a long time, the situation was actually a lot more nuanced than that. There were certainly certain hot-button issues that the government was always going to take action against. So protests in favor of Tibetan independence or Taiwanese independence or anything to do with the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. But there were some other issues that the government used to give a little bit more space to. These issues have been deemed safe for discussion. And previously, previous to 2015, feminism was considered one of those issues. But since becoming China's president in 2012, Xi Jinping had been signaling that a lot of those previously safe issues were now off the table. Um, and even people who had been considered moderates were being arrested or harassed by the public security officials. And they found that what had previously been a line of safety had been moved. So that these previously tame issues that had been maybe not government sponsored, but certainly government tolerated were off the table. And so the arrest of the Feminist Five was just one more signal that the sphere for speaking out had grown even smaller. What was the public reaction in 2015, at home and abroad, and how effective was it? Abroad, a lot of leading American politicians and European politicians as well spoke out against the arrest of the Feminist Five. Several of them took to social media to do so. So Hillary Clinton very famously tweeted in support of the Feminist Five, um, as did Samantha Power and John Kerry, the Secretary of State, issued a statement urging China to release the women, and several other European leaders did as well. On the Chinese internet, people spoke out. They pointed out that the women had not actually done anything, that they had simply been planning an action, but they hadn't had the opportunity to carry it out and therefore hadn't really violated any laws. The women were released in mid-April, as I said. They continued to be monitored by the public security officials, and they found it difficult, if not impossible, to carry out their activist work as they had done before their arrest. 
I don't think we should credit the tweets of American politicians or uh, anyone else really for making the authorities release them. Uh, the Chinese government does things for its own reasons. Um, quite frankly, at the time, I was more surprised that they were released comparatively quickly. You know, after just over a month in detention, I thought that they would be held longer. I'm not really sure what made the government decide to release them, but it did. The song we heard at the start seeks to reclaim female strength, and you note that women were important in the communist rise to power. Talk about that, indeed the first piece of legislation in their new government. In the 1930s and 40s, as the Chinese Communist Party was building up its ranks, women were very important to the party. And one of the party's promises at that time was that it would liberate Chinese women from the restrictions of traditional Confucian patriarchy. Only months after the People's Republic of China, or the PRC, was founded in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party carried through one of those promises, and it promulgated its first major piece of legislation in May of 1950, which was the first uh, marriage law, or the new marriage law. This established marriage as a union between two individuals. It had to be entered into freely by both of them, so young girls couldn't be sold into marriages anymore as had previously been a common practice. It also set minimum ages for marriage for both men and women to ensure that there wouldn't be child brides or child grooms. So it really was an important and revolutionary piece of legislation that signaled the government's commitment to making a change in the relationship between men and women in China. But for all the subsequent posters of women driving tractors, working in factories, even parachuting from airplanes, you make, you make it clear the message was not one of personal achievement or self-fulfillment. No, all of that was about serving the party, about continuing the revolution, um, about being a productive citizen of the nation. Women were free to go to work in factories, yes, but that was because they were producing, they were contributing to China's economy and producing for the country's future. And while top-down party rule expanded some opportunities for women, it also meant a quite limited response to grassroots desires for more. Right. This is completely top-down women's liberation directed by the government. And again, there was extremely limited space for protests or any sort of bottom-up movement. In uh, your early years in China, you wondered how deeply ingrained the concept of male-female equality had really become, and you sought evidence in help-wanted signs uh, around Beijing and in the halls of academe where you studied. What did you find? When I moved to China in 2005, I could read a little bit of Chinese. I had started studying the language in the United States, but not a whole lot. Over the course of my six months or so in Beijing that first time, though, I realized that day by day, I could read more and more. And one of the first things that I could read in full were help wanted signs in the windows of shops and restaurants, because they were pretty short, they were pretty clear, they were quite direct. And I saw that to my eyes, they were also quite sexist. Um, they said things that employment ads in the United States weren't allowed to say. So they would specify if the job was open to males or females, they would give a height minimum, perhaps an age range, and they were just very clear that appearance was important, that gender and sex were important. This was considered permissible. It wasn't legal, but it wasn't something that a lot of people spoke out against either. 
Well, so over time, I spent more and more time uh, in academia as I was in graduate school and then working on my PhD. And academia can be a very masculine sphere in China. Of course, it can be in the United States as well. But at the government think tanks where I spent the most time, it was generally very, very masculine. There were often only the one woman at a conference or on a panel. Um, and there's also a very tiresome joke that a lot of male Chinese professors would tell me, which is that there are three sexes, males, females, and women with PhDs. <laughs> uh, there was a bright spot, I gather, for women who were there uh, and in need of toilet facilities. Yes, I, I have to say that Chinese conferences are one of the few places where I never had to wait in line for the ladies' room. <laughs> the Communist Party structure itself uh, provides a terrible example, you write. Yes, there has never been a woman on the Politburo Standing Committee, which is the highest level of Chinese government um, right below the president. There's going to be a party congress later this year, uh, the 19th Party Congress in the fall. There's a little bit of occasional discussion that maybe a woman will be appointed to the Politburo Standing Committee when the committee is reorganized at this year's conference. I don't think that's very likely. This underrepresentation trickles down throughout the many layers of the political structure. So there have only been a few provincial governors who were women. There are not very many women represented at lower levels of the Chinese government. And so we can see that for all of the Communist Party's stated commitment to gender equality, it doesn't really do very much to bring women up into its higher reaches. In fact, the party's All-China Women's Federation has actually taken the lead in a public campaign to demonize those who delay or decline marriage, leftover women. The All-China Women's Federation is this very contradictory organization because it is a government institution and therefore it can't really speak out against gender inequality or even in some cases admit China's problems in that sphere. And several years ago, um, as sociologist Leda Hong Fincher has written about, the All-China Women's Federation played a large role in this campaign demonizing women who didn't marry by the age of 27 or so and so were considered leftover women. And the Federation's website posted articles about the dangers of getting too educated or focusing too much on your career and therefore making yourself unmarriageable. And it really seemed to be encouraging this return to a sort of domestic containment in Ch among Chinese women, urging them to get sort of educated, you know, maybe a master's degree was okay, but getting a PhD was a step too far marrying early and having a child, the one child that you were permitted at that time before you got too old. What role did China's infamous one-child policy play in the relationship of the, of the genders? There's so much to say about the one-child policy, um, certainly enough for a second episode of this podcast. But for this discussion, I think what's most important to note is that it's yet another example of a top-down policy that was enforced on women that didn't take their individual desires into, into account. Um, it was enforced by a massive government bureaucracy that monitored and controlled women's fertility on the behalf of the government. And it resulted in some places in quite extreme 
sex imbalances because there was a preference for boys, especially in the countryside, and the advent of um, ultrasound technology, cheap ultrasound technology, meant that women, while they were pregnant, could go get an ultrasound to see if they were having a girl or a boy, and then if they were having a girl and didn't want one, could engage in sex-selective abortion. And so in some places in China, there are quite extreme imbalances in the male-to-female ratio in favor of men. You spotlight what you call a trifecta of barriers to Chinese women, uh, institutionalized discrimination from the party down, as you mentioned, societal pressure for traditional roles, and family expectations for offspring. Still, I was interested that you suggest a, a culture of family closeness there can both pressure young women into marriage, but also facilitate a new freedom, uh, especially for young mothers, as compared with their problems in America. Talk about that. So in China, for a very long time, it's been um, expected that grandparents will maybe move in with their children or at least move very close to their children so that they can then care for grandchildren while the parents are at work. For many years, this was um, facilitated by the fact that the mandatory retirement age in China was considerably lower than it is in the United States. So by their early to mid-50s, a lot of Chinese um, people would be retired, and that was almost exactly the time when their own children were having their children. And so this is still largely the case. It's beginning to change a little bit, particularly in large cities. But you still, if you go to a park or a playground in China during the day, during the week, there are just dozens and dozens of grandparents taking care of their grandchildren at those public spaces. And so this means that couples aren't burdened with the cost of daycare, which of course in the United States are extraordinarily high. And I think to a certain extent, it also relieves some of the emotional struggle of feeling like their kids spend too much time with strangers, um, which are, you know, is a thing that my American peers have talked about feeling with their children when they send them off to daycare. So they know that even if the kids aren't with them because they're, the parents are at work, at least their children are with family members and they're being cared for by their grandparents. So it does lead to a, a facility for working mothers. What are some other bright spots for women, signs of progress? Certainly we're seeing um, high rates of female education in China, so much so that in 2008 the government started instituting quotas trying to raise the numbers of young men who were being admitted into certain universities or certain programs. And we're also seeing um, pretty pretty high rates of success for women in China in, the, in terms of business. Many of the world's self-made millionaires are Chinese women. And you say there is desire for action and for change that your Western feminist sensibility missed at first, uh, like a low-key Chinese version of American consciousness raising in the, late, in the 60s. Yeah, again, I think we're talking about fairly small numbers of educated urban women, but there's beginning to be more and more discussion about issues of gender equality, of sort of female liberation, and certainly when um, Charles Sandberg's book Lean In came out several years ago, it was very widely discussed in, among women in uh, urban China about ways that they could be more equal at work. 
as the spread of media grows, what's the role of popular culture and, and even advertising in the sort of accepted and changing social norms? Well, last year there was an advertisement um, about the issue of leftover women. It was produced by a Japanese cosmetics company, and it showed uh, it was a short film that showed several women in Shanghai um, discussing how they struggled with the idea of being a leftover woman. It showed their family members talking about their feelings toward um, their daughters and how they felt having a leftover woman in the family and how difficult it was for them. At the end, it showed um, the family members and the daughters going together to a big display in a park in Shanghai and talking about how the women weren't lonely, they were strong, they were independent, they could take care of themselves. This was undoubtedly a short film made to sell cosmetics, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. But it got... It, it struck a chord in the public consciousness among many people, and a lot of Internet commentators went online to talk about how there needed to be more of this type of discussion about social issues, and especially about the place of single women in Chinese society, that it wasn't a problem, that it, it shouldn't be pathologized or characterized as a shortcoming on the part of these women. What about legal challenges along the lines of that Newsweek's uh, Good Girls uh, lawsuit? There have been a couple of gender discrimination lawsuits in China, um, employment-related lawsuits. It's incredibly difficult to file a lawsuit like that because Chinese courts for a very long time have had uh, discretion about the cases that they accept. And so if they don't want to take a case, if they don't want to dive into the issue, they simply don't accept it. Um, but in the past couple of years, there have been a couple of employment discrimination lawsuits that were successfully placed with the courts. Um, in the first case in 2012, the plaintiffs settled out of court. And then in 2014, there was the first actual victory by a plaintiff in such a case. And so these are only a couple of examples. It's still not something that most people would do, I don't think. Um, and in fact, both of the plaintiffs in those cases used pseudonyms because they were afraid that if their actual names were associated with the cases, they would then find it difficult to gain employment after the legal battle was over. But the fact that we're starting to see this, I think, is an indication that it could start to happen more frequently in the future. Your final message to the rulers in Beijing is that the stability they cherish may be better maintained by giving millions of women more of the freedom that the leaders seem so worried by. How so? Well, I don't know if the leaders in Beijing are listening to me, um, <laughs> but I think they, they freak out at the type of action that the Feminist Five and their colleagues were planning because the Chinese Communist Party's leaders recognizes that as the type of protest that it should be worried about. It sees that and it knows what it's looking at. It doesn't seem quite so aware that there could be a less provocative sort of simmering feminism that's composed of millions of small acts that cumulatively can change things just as much as a couple of big protests and, in fact, may get more traction among the public. Because the thing with the Feminist Five and 
other feminist activists like them is that they do big sort of in-your-face public protests, which I think most women in China wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable engaging in. But something like filing a legal, legal claim or a legal protest, something about um, talking with other women at your workplace about ways to advance, that's much more palatable. And that can change things just as much. Dr. Cunningham, thank you. Thank you very much. Maura Elizabeth Cunningham is a writer and historian whose work has appeared in Time Magazine, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Dissent, and Pacific Standard. Her essay in the new winter issue of World Policy Journal is Good Girls Revolt, The Future of Feminism in China. Also featured in the new WPJ winter issue, Interrupted, Written and edited entirely by female foreign affairs experts, you'll find articles on the brinksmanship of Vladimir Putin, on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, and on a Saudi-Egyptian alliance going on the rocks. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the bad manners and serious bias that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up from the real world. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.